Welcome to the Christine Spray Show, bringing you insights and stories from successful CEOs to help grow your business and increase your revenue. The Christine Spray Show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Christine Spray. Hi, I am Christine Spray, and welcome to another episode of the Christine Spray Show. For this episode, we have a guest host, David Spray, who is interviewing Chuck Drobny, the president and CEO of Globalogix here in Houston, Texas. Chuck has an interesting background, starting with his time at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and then for the next five years as an officer in the U.S. Army. Through his time at West Point and in the Army, he learned many lessons around leadership and shares some of them in this interview. Chuck also discusses the lessons he learned in his long, varied career and the advice he would give his 25-year-old self. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, Chuck. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, David. Good to speak to you again. How the world treat you? Yeah, it is treating me fine. And how about you? Well, we're good. You know, we have the normal ups and downs. And, you know, every day you come into work, you think that it's going to be smooth as glass and something comes up and bites you in the toes or other parts of the body. Sure. Well, I'm an accountant and I'm kind of a chronological thinker. So why don't we start at the beginning? So are you from Houston originally? No, I originally, I was born in New York City and raised on Long Island. Went to school in New York. At school, went into the Army. And uh, spent about five and a half years in the Army. And after that, I went to work for Mobile Oil. I was hired and I sold lubricating oil and fuel to riverboat operators on the Ohio River. Okay. Uh, I got married while I was in the Army and had my first, had our first child. Our son was born while we were in the Army in Hawaii. And from Mobile, I was at Mobile, and I went and got myself a master's degree in business and then was hired by one of my customers. So I went into the inland barge towing business, and I was working in operations in Louisville, Kentucky. And I got hired away by a competitive barge line and became the engineering manager for a fleet in Nashville, Tennessee. Did that for a few years. Oh my gosh, after that, I went into the uh, maritime communication business. After that, a couple of moves, wound up with a, uh, we lived in southern Mississippi, and I started a software company. I was writing communications and operations management software for workboats. So that would be river okay. boats, offshore supply boats, and fishing boats. Sold that company to a company in San Diego and actually managed that company in San Diego for a few years. After that, I went and taught some college, some online college for, I don't know, two or three years. And then in 2004, a fellow who I had done some work with called me up and asked me that proverbial question, you know, hey, what are you doing? Which I think is code for, I think I got something going on and I might want to talk to you about it. Yeah. He told me that he was starting a uh, oil field service company in Houston, and would I be interested? And I said, well, you know, I only respond to offers. I don't respond to maybes. He said, well, when I get ready, so when you get ready, give me another call. And he called me back in 2006. Uh, at the time, we were living in Middle Tennessee in the Nashville area. We went from there. Yeah, I got the second phone call in 2006. 
He said he was ready. I said, good, I'll be in front of your desk in the morning. Flew down in Houston and told me what he was doing, made me an offer, which was better than what I was doing. So I got here in September 2006. Okay. Oh, it was good you arrived in September, so at least you just caught the tail end of the summer. Yeah, but I'd been in Houston enough times to understand. Plus, <laughs> You knew what in, you were getting into? Yeah. Keep in mind that I've lived in, I lived in Gulfport, Mississippi for 10 years. Oh, that's I, right. I have to say that it competes very fairly with the untenable weather in Houston in the summertime. Okay. So, hey, I just want to go back to something that you just kind of glossed over. So you mentioned you entered the Army after college, but you didn't mention that you were, you were I guess, appointed to serve to become a student at West Point. Is that the technical term? Are you appointed as a student or are you invited? What's the technical well, you, term? You make application and the, uh, there's really kind of two, two pieces to that equation for any of the service academies. The first one is you need to get nominated by either a congressman or a senator. And they're nominated. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. And then you have to go through a series of evaluations and tests and you have to qualify medically, physically, and academically and meet the academy's entrance requirements, at which time, if you make the cut, the academy lets you know that you're in. So just having a, you know, people think that if you have a congressman in your back pocket or something like that, you're guaranteed to get in. But that's certainly not the case. So I was okay. out of a district on Long Island in 1968. Okay. And, and then is my understanding also correct that, that, that the government pays for your education? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, pays quote unquote, right? I mean, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, the, I'm really not sure how it works now, but I think it's probably the same. While you're a head or a midshipman or at the service academy, you're given a, a paycheck of one half of a second lieutenant's pay, base pay. Oh, really? However, you are required to buy your own uniforms and you are required to buy your books and you're required oh. to buy you know, your personal use items. So, yeah, they, they give you room and board, but uh, you pay for that. Now, most of the guys, I mean, I think I graduated with, I don't know, a, thousand, a couple thousand dollars maybe in the savings account. Okay. Um, so, yeah, but for the most part, in terms of tuition and all that other stuff, uh, it was a, it was a, the government paid for it. We did have, uh, we got 30 days paid, 30 days of, of time off a year in summertime. So you were either training or in academics for 11 out of 12 months. Okay. When I got commissioned at graduation, I had a five-year commitment to serve on active duty in, in the Army. And that's part of the, the deal you make, right? When you yeah. enter one of the academies. So in a way, it sounds like you really entered the army when you entered West Point, right? I mean, yeah, didn't count for cert, didn't count for years of service for retirement or anything like that. Okay, it did. It was a, I don't know. It was a very structured and safe environment. I mean, you knew what the rules were. You knew that if you stayed within the guidelines and in the bounds, you were protected. You knew that you had a place to study, a place to sleep, a place to eat. You had friends. You had activities and. Um, Quite different from the rest of life, tell you the truth. Sure. And you didn't have to worry about whatever clothing or hairstyle trends were in vogue during that time either, did you? No, and, and frankly, <laughs> I never really cared about that before I got there or after I got there either. So understood. That, that wasn't much of an adjustment for me. It's like 
Okay. And then lastly, of course, thank you for your service to our country. I appreciate it. Well, it was a job that had potential risk that never really got realized. I can tell you that nobody ever shot at me. And, you know, we spent a lot of time training and away from family and spent a lot of hours and were always subject to deployments and did get deployed once or twice. But I was one of those fortunates. I'll go to my grave not knowing how I would ever have responded if somebody started shooting at me. Understood. Understood. Well, with that, why don't we why don't we fast forward back in the story to when you joined Global Logics? That was the company you joined in Houston. Is that correct? Yes, that's where I am now. So, tell us a bit more about Global Logics. So, when I came, there were three out of five original founders. Two of them had dropped out. Their vision was to create some SCADA solutions, which SCADA stands for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition, which is a an abbreviation for essentially operating control and monitoring systems. It's the automation that goes behind operating a facility remotely, identifying how fast the oil is flowing, how filled the tanks are, being able to control valves and switches and all that kind okay. of stuff. They, they had started out with just a few people. I got here, there were four employees, three employees. I was put into operations and we started to grow the company by contracts for building this kind of equipment and servicing it. Mostly we were doing that out of East Texas, up out of the Fairfield, Texas area. Okay. I was able to bring on board, I don't know, a couple, two, three dozen technicians and they brought, that gave us an opportunity to work with some customers we were named, we, when I got there, we were doing about 400K in revenue. And then two years later, we were several million in revenue. We were fortunate to be named the number one company in Houston for the fast tech. Okay. We had that. We were on that fast tech list for, I think, two, maybe two more years. You know, it's, it's real easy to go from 400,000 to two and a half, three, four million and show a huge percentage increase. Sure. Not so easy to have the same kind of percentage increase when you start getting up in the numbers. Yep. Yep. That hap- it happens to every one of those fast growing lists. It's always yeah. the, it's always the, <clears throat> it's so you're battling the mathematical equivalent of gravity. <laughs> That's true. So uh, what do you enjoy most about serving as the, the leader of the company? You know, I guess I enjoy seeing things get created out of, Nothing. I enjoy working with the team. I have to tell you that I like being in a position where I can control the output, control the organization, and guide the organization. I think that's kind of still with me from having been in the army, where you your all of your training and all your focus was to be to be the commander of a unit and be able to guide it and run it. But at the same time, I still get a sense that I'm really a servant, not just to the shareholders and the customers, but also to the people. Um, people ask me sometimes, you know, what's my number? And I always tell them right now it's about 66. And they're thinking, well, what is that? Is that a revenue? Is that profitability? And no, it's 66 families that we have that mm-hmm. we've supported. And, you know, the business cycle in oil and gas tends to look like a long-term roller coaster. We're just coming and recovering and from the, my third, I call it my third up-down. So we've had some years that were difficult at some years that were a lot easier. But each year when the activity increases and the customers are more more abundant, 
that comes with different sets of challenges or some people would say problems. So there's no, uh, no free lunch. Um, mm-hmm. Some years are better than others, but the struggles are kind of different. Certainly for everybody in the country, COVID was a totally unique challenge for everybody. And it was the same for us. But uh, right now, with the price of oil being where it is, there's more activity than there was in the past two or three years. Although a lot of people don't realize that the the pace of capital investment and expansion in oil and gas compared to the price of oil is not the same as it has been in the past. Why do you think that is? Oh, it's clear. One is that the, the investment community that owns these oil and gas companies has put some strong demands on the companies to, number one, clean up their balance sheet. You know, a lot of people don't realize that two years ago, the, the majors and the mid-majors were losing billions of dollars. And now they're making a lot of money. But over the course of a few years, it's, it's almost a wash. Okay. So their balance sheets have been terrible. A lot of the, the large majors are selling off a lot of assets. The second thing that's going on from the investment community is they want dividends. They want to see dividends paid. And that means that the cash that the companies have has to go to paying out, paying out those dividends and not doing new production. I also suspect that um, there's still a little bit of there's a little bit of I think these guys are a little bit more cautious. We're seeing an awful lot of short-term starts and stops. Demands of government are becoming more important for business planning than they were in the past. And I think some of the uh, some of the leadership is just a little bit reticent about pulling out all the stops and drilling as much. And we also have some time-lapse problems. I mean, we fundamentally shut down drilling for two years. So all those rigs that used to operate, there used to be 1,200 rigs operating in the U.S. now that's... 600, roughly. Mm. And, wow. you know, it's, a, a rig is not something you can go to go to HEB and, and pick another one off the shelf and put it in place and start working it. Sure. That's a problem. Manpower is also a, another huge problem. And I think, that, I think that our country and our economy right now suffers from an extreme lack of people. I think we're running out of bodies. Our birth rate is low. We, we have, I don't know of a single company that doesn't have a help wanted sign out. And, right. You know, I anticipated your questions and thinking about this. Uh, I hear a lot of noise and I read a lot of noise on the internet about how people don't want to go to work. They get paid to be at home. Well, the unemployment rate right now is about three, 3.2. I think it's what the government just came out with. I don't know if you remember, but when I went to college and I studied economics, they always said that unemployment was never going to go much below 4%. Because there are people in transition. Right. Jobs. So it was statistically impossible to go much below 4%. Well, we're there now. So, And a lot of those subsidies and a lot of those payments are, have stopped. Those COVID-related payments have stopped. So I think what we're seeing is we just don't have folks. And there may be some people who don't want to work maybe for minimum wage because they're getting by some other way. But the demand, I'm not looking for anybody at minimum wage. I'm looking for technicians. I'm looking for skilled workers. I'm looking for people, as most of these companies are. And then on top of that, you have some real fears about supply chain interruption. We've seen those. We hear about them. Computer chips. I mean, I just bought three vehicles from an auction in Utah. From, it was a law enforcement auction. We bought the three vehicles. 
because we frankly can't get new ones. I got a vehicle fleet of about 21, 22 vehicles. You can't buy new vehicles because the chips aren't there. Right. There are shortages of metal. And we haven't even begun to look and see what the global shortage on foodstuffs is going to be with Ukraine essentially being taken out of the global mix. Ukraine and Russia both taken out of the global mix for food. I think the supply chain interruptions are going to continue and they're going to become... We have some products that we use that the manufacturer said, well, it's 12 to 18 months lead time before you can get them. You know, we're using other things. So all these these issues combine together to slow down the development and, and increasing production. You know, increasing oil and gas production is not a matter of just turning a valve. It's got right. a lot more to it. And a lot of things people don't understand about energy. And, you know, one of the things is just because we can get it out of the ground in West Texas doesn't mean we've got pipelines that have capacity so we can move to refineries. Right. So there's, there's a lot of issues there. And I went off on a diatribe there and bring me back on another question. <laughs> okay. So uh, what are, are there any, is there any silver lining to the last couple of years or is it pretty much, you know, all headwinds? Wow. Any silver lining to the last couple of years? Boy, I'm hard pressed to uh, tell you that there's, this is what's good as to what's come out of the last few years. It's been so much disruption, so much upset. I think that we have not begun to appreciate the potential damage that we've done to our children by keeping them out of school. I am not at all confident that the vaccination program is not going to produce any intermediate or long-term effects, health effects. I think Mm -hmm. that uh, people distrust the government more and more, and we have a government that's doubling down on controls not having a bloody clue as to what they're doing. I think that uh, I had predicted when all this started that we would see rises in domestic abuse, alcoholism, drug use. Fentanyl is killing more people than anything else right now. And without the last two years, that would not be the crisis that it is. The border is admitting millions of people who we could put to work, but I can't hire them legally because they can't get us through the I-9 process. Right. So while there are certainly folks in those migrants who we don't want to have here and we don't want to have living next to us, I think for everyone that isn't there, there's probably 50 or 100 that we'd like to have. But of course, we're not giving them a path to citizenship. We're marginalizing all those people and they're becoming more likely to listen to some of the people on the extreme left who tell us that we're a bad country, we have bad people in it, and everybody hates it. Right. So, um, interesting question, David. You know, is there a silver lining to any of this stuff? So, it sounds like the answer is not that's readily apparent. Yeah, and if you talk to somebody who tells you that there's a silver lining, please let me know, because I'd like the encouragement. <laughs> I will I will do that. I like, I kind of like little mini case studies for a learning opportunity. So looking at your company, can you think of, a, of an example over the last couple of years, even let's say five years of a customer situation where you all really were able to make a big impact and maybe just kind of walk us through the situation and you know how you all were able to make a big impact and you can keep the, you know, the company anonymous? Yeah, we had a... Um a customer who had a pipeline 
that went for a good thousand miles and they wanted to reverse the flow on that pipeline. And in order to do that, they needed to change the control systems for their river crossings, their pump stations, and their uh, well, river crossings and uh, pump stations. They wanted to have some commonality from one, one set of controls at one facility to the next. But like any other large company, they were constantly dealing with changes in their staffing and their people. The, we wound up building about 120 different site panels for these guys. And they asked us to enforce standards of commonality, which sometimes it was a fight with people in the company because they wanted to do it in a particular location for something different. We were able to do that for them, and we provided that sense of continuity. They did complete all of the stations, reverse the pipeline. And it went, well, I don't think they would have been able to do that with multiple companies or with some other folks. Okay. Uh, in West Texas, Global Logics has been around longer than any other company that does this kind of stuff. The other thing that we've done for companies is that we happily bundle or unbundle any part of our service. So whether we're designing a SCADA system for them based upon what they plan to put into their black iron, or we're building the panels, or we're programming the panels, or we're doing the installs in the field, a lot of companies come and they either want to do it all or they're only going to do a certain piece. We've never told a customer that they have to go find somebody else to perform a connected piece of their project. And that's worked out well. So our Customer relationships tend to be, they're not recurring revenue, but they're sticky revenue. Okay. Uh, companies work with us and they find that they know how we work. We accommodate our processes to meet their organizational mandates. And they never get stuck holding the bag for a communications piece or an end device piece or, a, or an install piece. We found a way to, we, we find a way to make it work for them. And I tell you that I don't think we've ever done the same set of tasks for two companies or two customers. Everything's unique. Interesting. And that reverse pipeline flow project, like how long did a project like that take from start to finish? Was it months or years? Well, it was about four and a half, five years. Oh, wow. That's, so we, we stuck with it with them, gave them, and I got a whole wall of documentation on that stuff. Yeah, I bet. That we did. That's a pretty long project. Um, a lot of the projects we have a customer now in, in West Texas, and you know their corporate leadership does not want to exclusively give one company all the work. So we kind of share the burden with with another company. But we've been doing the same kind of well pad, well pad, well site build out with them for the last I don't know three years. We've been working for them. Okay. What happens is we'll be sticky with a customer. We'll have their relationship for three or four years, and then something will change where their management changes or their mix changes, and you know they're just not doing that kind of build out anymore. Okay, that makes sense. What are the are there particular characteristics you look for either at the company level or the individual level when you're trying to size up a company? as a potential customer of yours? Are there, is it just very black and white or are there kind of some intangibles that come into play? I, as a general rule, I tell my potential customers and customers that in the SCADA environment, you guys don't know what you want until after you get it. Ah. And the very process of 
walking somebody through the design and the fabrication and the construction requirements, we ask them to specify what it is that they want or how they want it. And I use the trite example of, do you want this thing in green or blue? And they smack their forehead and say, my gosh, it comes in colors. Then <laughs> they start talking about green and yellow and flashing numbers and things like that. So I run the analogy to if you've ever had somebody who's built their own house, mm-hmm. they've the couple has built a house with a contractor. I ask them if the house that they finished looks like what they envisioned when they started. And invariably, the answer is always, heck no, it doesn't happen. The other issue is the technology and the platforms are constantly changing. I mean, how many times do you have to upgrade the software on your iPhone or on your computer? Oh, sure. Your capabilities. So there's a trying to remember what the heck the question was. Oh, I don't know that it even matters. Oh, I was asking you different directions. No, I was asking you about intangibles of what you look for in a customer. And I think I look for, yeah, I look for a, a company number one that has a CapEx budget and plans. They want to do, they want to build more sites. They want to build more, you know, they're, they're drilling. They want to develop their web, their well pads. They want to integrate their saltwater disposal system. I look for the cap budget. Second thing we look for is, do we have a relationship with operational people who know what we've done and how we've done it? And to this extent, over the course of the years we've been in business, we've had a lot of employees who've gone to work for our customers or work work for oil and gas companies. And right now, I mean, three of the companies that we're working with, we got brought in because our former employees are now in managerial positions with those companies. So that's another help. Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, it's interesting because I started my career at Arthur Anderson here in Houston, you know, the big accounting conglomerate that fell at the same time as Enron. And they really prided themselves on having the most, the largest and most robust and engaged alumni network. And that's what they referred to ex-employees, you know, not as, you know, loser ex-employees, but the alumni network. And anytime anytime anybody in the audit department announced they were leaving the firm, you know, it was typically to go to work for a client or, you know, to go into industry. The, the tone of the relationship changed immediately. The, that, employee went from immediately being treated as an employee to a potential client. And and they always made sure that the transition out was that they left the employee with a really great taste in their mouth. And uh, so what you'd mentioned about that, the tentacles of the former employees being real valuable because the former employee understands better than anyone, whether the company does good work or not, don't they? Yeah, and it also goes too for customers because right now our biggest customer, the uh, the guy who brought us in, was working at another customer when we had a shop in another in up by Fort Worth, and he worked with us there, liked us, we fit very well with him. He left and went to work for a company in the Permian Basin. When he got there, he called us up. You know, we've been. This industry does not have has a lot of people who you keep running across the same faces as they, they move various places in their career. So it's the alumni network for sure, but the customer alumni are also a valuable resource to keep track of. 
So you're saying it sounds like it's a good it's a good business practice to not screw your employees or your customers. It sounds like that's what I'm hearing you say, right? Well, I think it's a good business practice, but it's a moral imperative not to screw your not to screw anybody. Sure, of course, I was. It's interesting with the employees. I insist that when we talk to an employee who's thinking about leaving, I mean, the first words out of my mouth are, "You need to do what's good for you and for your family. That's your first priority with me." And I'm not going to try to create any blocks or talk about anything other than that. You do what you think works for your family. Now, I may then turn around and talk about why I think that working with us is better than working for you know another company. Mm-hmm. Usually, when they leave us, they go to a large, they go to a larger company customer, and they think there's job security there. You know, all of our operational supervisors, our superintendent, and our director of operations, they all start out as helpers. Oh, really? Upward mobility in. in in our company with what we're working with. Our technicians and our field service guys work real hard and they do a lot of overtime. I think it surprises most people when I tell them that our average pay for our field guys, last year they averaged about $97,000 a year. Oh, really? Nearly six figures. That's a lot of money for when you think about you know, you got to go to college and you got to do all these other things. These guys, they work hard. On some of my engineers and more technical guys, that average number is more like 115000 Oh, wow. I got one guy who drives a truck and, and works on sites who darn near made as much money as I did last year. That's great. I bet you wish you had more of those people. Well, I wish I had more of those customers and could fill them up. Oh, sure. There you go. Changing gears a little bit. If you could go back in time and give advice to your 25-year-old self, what advice might you give? Trust God and stop trying to trust yourself. Okay. Well, that's, that is sounds like wise counsel. You know, I, I battering that question around when you suggested this meeting. You know, there were missed opportunities that I had. I look back early on when I was 25. You know, maybe I could have jumped in and taken those opportunities, but I'm not sure. I sold my software company years ago to somebody who I should have told to go pound sand. Yeah. I think uh, I would have been much better off. I seemed in the last 10 years to be able to discern things amongst people, to listen to and make spot on conclusions about what's motivating them and what's driving them. It would have been really nice to have that realization and have that skill set in my 20s and following through my 30s and 40s. But, hmm. Uh, the lessons that I learned and that I work on now are all lessons that I learned through the hard times. Um, that you, you learned, know, I'm sorry, that you learned through what? Through the hard times. Um, oh, through the hard times. Okay. We learn from our failures more than we learn from our successes. Yeah. True. Okay. So now I'd like to talk to you a bit about a more personal item. So I understand that you've served as a ride marshal for the the annual yeah. MS-150 bike ride, which, by the way, for the people listening, it's a cruel joke that they call it the 150 because you think it's 150 miles, but you discover on the second day that it's really like 180 miles. So, so talk to me about that. How did you become involved in that? You know, all my life I have tried to do something physical, and I think that kind of comes from starting out at West Point where they said this is what you got to do for life. So about every 10 years I took on some 
a different kind of sport. Prior to getting here, I was playing a lot of ice hockey in my 50s. And I just started riding a bicycle because it seemed like it was easier than running. I wasn't running as well. I used to run about 500 to 1,000 miles a year. Okay. It became more difficult. So I took up bike riding. And then I had a, I attended a funeral for a young man who died in a skiing accident. And he was, his mother was talking about how he motivated her to finish the MS-150. And I said, well, heck, I'm going to go do the MS-150. And I loved it. The, uh, the MS-150 and the cycling events around Houston are, you know, you can't go any other place where you have 10,000 people doing one activity and they all have a job. And you can go to a break area and put a few thousand dollars worth of equipment down on the grass, knowing full well that it'll all be there when you come back. Right. People help each other and support each other. And so I rode the 150 along with a lot of weekend events. I was doing about five, 6,000 miles a year on the bike. I saw the ride marshals and they were helping people and I thought, you know, I could do that. That's pretty, uh, pretty good. A little secret is one of the advantages of being a ride marshal is when you get to day two and you're getting a little tough, it's getting a little tough on you and you're kind of wishing the next rest stop would come up. You're around the corner and there's somebody sitting there with a flat tire that needs help. So you get oh. bike and look like you're doing something when it's like, okay, I'll help you change your tire and I'll catch my breath. <laughs> you know, I never really, I never really thought about that. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I've always, uh, well, I appreciate your service to the country and your service to the cycling community because I've done that ride. Uh, I think my wife's done it over 20 times and she got me into cycling and I think we've done it together maybe three or four times and the, uh, the ride marshals and really all the volunteer people really are what make that event work as well as it does. Well, interesting about the ride marshals is this year, I think there's about 120 of us, you know, maybe 10,000 riders total. Each one of us rides for a separate team. I've been riding for the bike barn, which is now the Trek team. Yeah, they just recently uh, recently bought them from Neil and I forget his wife's name. No, it wasn't his wife. It was his partner. Lee is his partner. Uh, oh, Lee's his Oh, I always thought that was his wife. Okay. Yeah. Couple, not his wife. So the ride marshals all pay their way. They have to, they raise their own money like everybody else does, and we pay the same fees everybody else does. If you take the ride marshals year after year as and were to identify them as a separate team, we're either third or fourth highest fundraisers amongst all the dozens and dozens of teams that are out there. No kidding. Yeah. We raise a fair amount of money. It's a good ride. I ride for a lady who we worked with, worked, worked with the company for several years. She's got MS and she struggles, has good days and bad days. And I also ride for my cousin who had MS for 30 years before it took his life. So, um, it's a, it's a cruel disease. Almost all the money that everybody raises goes straight into research and treatment. Right. There's no overhead. The companies that support the ride all provide meals and rest stop stuff, and they're all volunteers. So when you look at an organization that's funding an event, we have a very high percentage of contribution for what money that's raised. So it's a good Houston event. Yeah, Agreed. Tell people who are thinking about riding, if you can ride a 30-mile event ride on any other week, you probably get yourself through the 150. My favorite time on as a ride marshal is on day two when people start to lag. Man, I give him John Wade speeches. Yeah. I give well, him which one of his 
Which one of the speeches? The Iwo Jima John Wayne speech or the you Western know, I, John I, Wayne speeches? I give him the spirit from, you know, I know it's hard. It's supposed to be hard. If it was easy, then everybody would be doing it and it wouldn't be worth doing. Ah. I usually try to ask him about the people who they raise money from because everybody raises their own funds. Right. Said, now, did you tell these people that you were going to try to ride the 150 or that you were going to finish? <laughs> they always say finish. I say, so you're not going to let those people down. And every now and then I'll find somebody who looks like a strong rider who's fading and I'll talk to usually a young man and say, look, I want you to grab one of those people and I want you to go with them and make sure that they finish with you. It seems to work out. A lot of good people rise to the occasion when you challenge them. If you make things easy for good people, sometimes they're not interested. Sounds like you've had some experience in leadership development through your lifetime, starting back when you're 18, I suppose. Yeah. Well, you know, I always, my, my trick question to people is, what do you think is the most important characteristic that a successful leader should have? And a lot of times it takes a lot of people a long time to come up with the answer, but the answer is you have to have a servant's heart. And any effective leader has always recognized that those people are not working for him or her. He's working for them. And when you do that and people see that you're going to fill your role, I mean, people want me to run the company and lead the company. They don't want me to follow but when they recognize that you're in it for them, they will crawl through cut glass on their hands and knees, pick up their end of it. But you got to show you got to show it on your side. And I tell you, I heard a great a great example of that. I'd interviewed a, another person for Christine's podcast, and the episode went live. I think it was two or three episodes ago. And the guy has a business that you know, kind of a blue collar te- technician heavy workforce and at their facility he they have a nice you know concrete parking lot and uh, you know nice parking spots right out front of the building but he said that he intentionally parks around the side of the building like in the mud to keep the clean uh, level flat concrete spots for his for his crew and and I always uh I always thought that was really interesting. And I bet that really does engender loyalty when they see the, you know, the boss man who could have, you know, the sign, you know, right next to the entrance, right. Reserved for the boss man. But instead he was, you know, parks around the side of the building. Yeah. I, as a corollary, you know, I make the primary managers here in Houston go out to West Texas and walk the ground with the guys. When I go out there at least once a quarter, I stay in the man camp where they stay, and I eat in the cafeteria where they eat. And uh, I don't let people go out and stay in hotels out there mm. where the guys are staying. So, you know, they appreciate that. But it's kind of different. You know, and some people want you to be the president, and they want you to be the leader, and they want you to have all the answers. Other people want you to ask them questions and look for their opinion. To some extent, if you're going to be successful style-wise, you are got to be a little bit of a chameleon. You just got to figure out what color those people want you to be. You know, you got to be fair and you got to be consistent, but you got to deal with people individually and show them what they're looking for. And when you show them that, they come through on their end. Now, that's that's great insight. We're down to just our final few questions. What's the biggest life lesson you learned at the Academy? Uh, I think the biggest life lesson I learned that's helped me was from Sergeant Major and told me to make sure I walk the ground. Don't ever ask any troops to go over any ground that you haven't walked. Make sure that you can 
experience what they've experienced and you don't ask them to do something that you're not willing to do and that they have to know that you're willing to do that. Doesn't mean I got to do that all the time. It just means they got to know that I don't hold myself above it. He essentially grabbed me and said, don't you ever look at a map and then tell somebody to go there and then go there. He says, you better go walk that ground first. Don't ask somebody to follow you someplace where you haven't been. And what's the importance just, you know, I guess, tactically of walking that ground? Is it just because it looks different on the ground than on the map and there's stuff that's, you know, gullies and stuff that's not on the map? Is that it? Or is it more of a psychological aspect or is it both? Well, you get an appreciation for what the people do. You know, I, when I, I make my guys drive out to West Texas because my our employees have to do that all the time. I want them to realize just how hard it is to drive out there and drive back. And I want them to realize what the hot sun is like. I want them to realize what it's like when it's wind and rain. And, and you know, it, it, yeah, to a certain extent, you get to see what's on the You know, when you do that, there used to be an expression called management by walking around. And what it is. Yeah. You wind up seeing and hearing and feeling and tasting and smelling little bits of glass that you can form into a mosaic that really paint the picture well, rather than just reading a spreadsheet or looking at some numbers or listening to a report. Mm. I don't know if that answered your question well enough, but... It does. No, I think to summarize that you felt like one of your biggest life lessons was to Make sure that you always walk the ground before you ask your your troops to go yeah. walk that ground. Yeah, right. I agree. And you know, I'm close to a lot of my classmates, several of whom you know rose all the way up as high as you can go in the army. And you know, they all talked about how the lessons that they had when they were junior officers, you know, always had a presence and a and awareness when they become, you know, more senior to it. You got to don't ask somebody else to go into harm's way if you're not willing to go there. You know, fundamental leadership says, follow me. It doesn't say go there. Right. No, I like that. I really appreciate that, that perspective. Well, as we're wrapping up here, let's turn to a fun question. Okay. So we're here in Texas. I know you're a transplant, but just give me your gut level answer. Barbecue or Tex-Mex? Oh, barbecue. Yeah. And and why barbecue? You know, I just, you know, too many tomatoes and Tex-Mex. You know, I guess it's good, but I like the barbecue and I'm, I'm a big beef ribs, beef brisket. My favorite barbecue place is Gibson's. Is it Gibson's? No, it's not Gibson's. It's, I'm thinking of the name of the place. Gatlin's? Lano, Texas. Oh, in in Lano. Okay. I don't think I've been there. And Cooper's, it's called Cooper's Barbecue. Oh, yeah, they're all perennial Texas Monthly top 10. Yeah, so you go to Cooper's and, you know, when I drive out to West Texas, I usually stop at Cooper's and get myself a big chunk of meat, have some of it at the table, and bring the rest back for dinner when I get to West Texas. So, yeah, definitely not Tex-Mex. I think my stomach doesn't handle the spiciness of it sometimes too much. How about you? Are you Tex-Mex or... Oh, you know, it's, so I asked this question to all of my guests and I think the most, the answer that defines my answer is if I'm told that I have two restaurants to choose from, one's Tex-Mex, one's barbecue, and both are world-class, I'll take the barbecue. Yeah. But if I'm told that they're mediocre or, you know, average, you know, certainly edible, but just nothing special, then I'd 
go with the Tex-Mex because the Tex-Mex seems to have more tolerance for imperfection than the barbecue. True. Yeah. And I, you know, but I'm one of those guys who, I mean, I regard food as something that you eat so that you can survive. I'm not a gourmet anything. So. Yeah. Understood. So I guess as we're wrapping up, is there anything I should have asked you, but I didn't or anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I had? Well, I will tell you that for for the people who are looking at the complexities of the economy and looking at the situation and thinking there's no more opportunity, I will tell you that there's more opportunity now for people in business, whether they're starting about their own company or providing ideas in another company. There's more opportunities in this country today than when I was when I first entered the workforce. And each year it seems to be growing. So the person who says, you know, there's no opportunity for me out there. I can't, I got no future. My experience in the last 50 years is there's a ton of opportunity and there's more and more every day. All you got to do is go out and, and get it. And, and make yourself valuable. We'd all rather be, uh, you know, I'd rather be lucky than smart. But I got to tell you, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Agreed. That is one of my favorite sayings. And, and it is true. Well, Chuck, this has really been a fun conversation. And I appreciate you t- taking time out of your busy day to, uh, to sit down with me. Well, and I appreciate you having me on, David, and thank Christine for recommending. I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm not sure if Barney has. He's been sprawled out under my desk and sleeping <laughs> like a rock the whole time. So you have a soothing voice. <laughs> well, I guess that's I guess that's worth something, if nothing else. So, well, that's great. Well, well, thank you very much, Chuck, and, and have a great afternoon and keep up Thanks. the good fight. And there we have it. Another great episode on the Christine Spray Show. Don't forget to check out the show notes at christinespray.com. And you can find out more about how we can be a resource to you at strategiccatalystinc.com. All the best in your continued success until the next time we talk.